This podcast is published by MDA National to support doctors in training with first-hand experiences from peers about their specialty and their medical journey. Hello, Ellen Liebeter here. Welcome to another podcast where MDA National's doctor members and other experts share their experiences in discussing doctors' health and well-being. Today I'm talking to Dr. Eric Richmond, who was chosen as Queensland Junior Doctor of the Year 2012 and is currently a permanent staff specialist in emergency medicine. Eric, would you be able to start by um, telling your specialization journey? Yeah, so I was always destined to enter into emergency medicine. Prior to medical school, I'd actually worked as a paramedic. And so I had an advantage that others didn't in that I, I truly knew where I wanted to go. I had a clean run on my registrar time, which is I'm really thankful for. So I was at uh, my, my first hospital at Ipswich Hospital for, for my intern, my JHO years. The year after that, when I was a junior registrar, I was able to be in the emergency department, finishing up my primaries, finishing up some of the requirements to get onto my advanced training. Got through that, and then my fourth year I spent in anesthetics for a full 12 months. After that, I moved on and finished out the end of my requirements. There are various hurdles you have to go over in, in any road to specialty, and I got through those and was able to... I was very thankful that I was able to come back as a specialist and uh, have my job there at the end, and, and that's where I'm at now as a permanent staff specialist. Could you tell me a little bit about some of those hurdles that you did experience en route to your specialty? So there's two sets of hurdles in any specialist journey. The first are the ones that you know are there. So this is, in the case of emergency medicine, your primary examinations, your research requirement, your fellowship examinations, both the written and the clinical. There is a requirement to have done a certain amount of time in a tertiary hospital, a certain amount of time in a not tertiary hospital. You have to do a pediatrics requirement. And these are the hurdles that you know are right ahead of you. You know them right from the start. They are laid out. I think a pitfall is to forget that you're expressly told what your hurdles are. And if you come into your specialist journey and you just kind of think, I'll figure this out as I get there, you're going to be at a real disadvantage. Um, The colleges are pretty good at just simply writing down what you need to do and they'll put it out there for you. And then there are the hurdles you don't expect. We head towards specialty as a as a doctor, and that takes up a, a phenomenal period of our time. But we also have lives and hurdles like, you know, relationships forming, relationships breaking up, children, and all of these things can come in and be unexpected. And it is important not to lose sight of the fact that you're also a person and you also have a life and medicine is a part of it, but it isn't all of that. I want to talk a little bit about the hurdles that you know are there. How do you manage those um, hurdles that you know are coming? One of the best ways to manage issues that you know are coming up is to sit down ahead of time and write it out. And in my case, I actually did it with a very large piece of paper, which was a series of pieces of paper stuck together. It was nothing more formal than that. And drew out the timeline of how I would get to specialist from med school and drew it out as boxes, as six-month blocks. Uh, Some colleges do, you know, you can do three or 12-month. It doesn't particularly matter how big the blocks are. And you say, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do this. And then once you've mapped out where you're going to be and what you're going to be doing, 
you can then plug into it the roadblocks that need to be done. Okay, in order to get to this spot, I need, in the case of emergency medicine, in order to do the fourth year being my first year of advanced training, I will need to have done 12 months of emergency medicine. Well, then that goes here. And in order to do that, I need to have completed my primary examinations. Okay, well, then that needs to go here. And you draw that. And by lining them all out and drawing them all up, they become quite doable. One of the issues is if you think of them all at once, it becomes very daunting to face it all. But if you think of it as a series of discrete steps, each discrete step is not particularly difficult. The exams notwithstanding, they're in every college, the exams are quite difficult. How do you go about managing those unexpected roadblocks that come up? I did it badly. And I think that <laughs> by, by seeing how I did it badly, I'm, I'm almost in a better place to explain how to do it well. One of the things I, I, I've mentioned uh, in a few situations is the idea of pre-positioning caches of resources for yourself and having the idea of a failure friend pre-positioned. So if you go to a colleague who is slightly ahead of you in the process, and it doesn't really matter where in the process you are, and you say, hey, at some point, something bad is going to happen in my career. It's an inevitability. When that happens, will you help me through it? And you cultivate that resource and you just have it there. Another thing you can do is having the idea of, you know, we all get letters on occasion from patients that are saying thank you or, a, you know, a flower from a child or something like that, that at the time you're having a good day and things are going well. And so it doesn't, it has value. They're wonderful things, but nothing compared to the value of that on a bad day. And so to place those somewhere, in my case, it's a, it's a physical box so that when you do have a bad day, you can come back and have that physical reminder of the good days. And these are all pre-positioned things because you know that these roadblocks are coming. Let's move on to talking a bit more about health and well-being. Is there a particular time for you that made you realize how important your physical health and well-being is? Yeah, for me, it was a little bit easier. I, I can kind of point to the exact moment, which is that heading into my primary exams, and, and these are difficult exams. They're thousand-hour exams for the primaries and 2,000-hour exams for the fellowships. They're, they're difficult examination processes. I, heading into my primaries, really neglected my own health and became, you know, really started to gain a lot of weight and lose a lot of, I never had a lot of physical fitness, but I lost what I had and became a pale, pasty, overweight, under, you know, undernourished but overfed individual. And I finished my exams and came out of the fog of those exams and kind of looked down at myself and thought, oh my goodness, what, what's happened? And that led to me changing who I was. And as I grew up as a doctor, I learned to do things a little bit differently. And I, I decided to be the sort of person who goes to the gym on a regular basis. And that's a different thing because there's no end point to that. There's no, there's no requirement that I lose weight. There's no requirement that I get fit. I just wanted to be the sort of person who eats well and exercises on a regular basis. And that's an easy change to make. I can do that tomorrow. And I did. And as a result of that, I um, very much changed the shape of who I am. And I sleep better. And I eat better. And I feel better. And my brain works better. And my body works better. And that concept of health and fitness 
feeds through to the concept of wellness. When you sleep well because you're not as overweight, you tend to breathe a bit better and you tend to sleep a bit better. And then when you wake up, your mind's a bit clearer and that feeds to your wellness. And they're very separate things. Your health and your wellness are separate things, but they feed each other. And you can get into a negative cycle or you can get into quite a virtuous cycle of the two. And when I was asked at one point, you know, what's the most important thing on the road to specialty? I said, it's simple, nutrition and physical fitness. And, and what's the best way to pass your exams? Nutrition and physical fitness. It's easy to do. And um, the benefits are, are absolutely there. So you mentioned um, that your physical health is quite important, but on the other side of it, your wellness is important. Things like uh, sleep and maintaining your mental cognition. Uh, among your colleagues, do you think that wellness is recognized as an important attribute as a doctor? Yes. In emergency medicine, there is very much a, an attitude of that. And I think emergency medicine with our reduced on-call load as a percentage of time, I think is in a position to feel that wellness a little bit more. I must say I feel a real advantage in doing the on-call percentage that I do. As you have more specialists in a group, you do fewer percentages on call. If you only have three surgeons in your hospital, they're on call one in three. There's no way around that. If you have 25 emergency doctors, you're only doing one in 25 on call. And so larger departments like emergency medicine, as far as number of specialists, do have a reduced call load. And I think that drives the wellness. And then the tragedy of that is that those of us who get the sleep and can think clearly as a result of getting the sleep and not being on call are the ones who so feel it when we do the on call to say, this isn't good for my wellness and I feel, un you know, I don't like this. So we're the ones who then drive the concept, whereas those who really could do with a break are just so darn tired. It's hard to say, I need a break. So what do you know now that you want to pass on to specialists in training? What I know now is that the end of the road is good. It is better to be a specialist than a registrar. It is better to be a registrar than a resident. And I think that the road through your registrar time feels so long. It feels like the longest time in the world, but it's a, it's a, it's a blink of the eyes in, in your life. And yes, we need to work on making the time better for registrars and residents. And yes, we need to do all of these things. But also individually, it would have been nice to know that, yeah, it, it is actually better at the end and it's worth it. There's one other thing I wanted to ask you about, and that is um, having a personal mantra. I understand that you have a personal mantra. Would you be able to share it with us and explain why you think it's helpful? Yeah, so I have two. I, have two. I kind of have a long-term one and a short-term one. The longer term mantra is when I'm where I am in 20 years, what do I want to have looked back on? What do I want this to look like in memory? And so it helps to guide my overall course, my long course. But in the short term, it's this concept of, you know, I am a river rock. The water can flow around me, but it does not flow through me, which takes a little while to say. But if you say, I am this rock and I exist in a river, and the river can be calm and babbling, or it can be this raging torrent. But that is a thing that's happening around me, not a thing that is happening in me. It, it, it's not me, it's what's around me. And if you 
conceptualize that enough, that becomes something you can use, or at least I use, in very chaotic situations when I've got multiple resuscitations going on, when I've got multiple events occurring and the whole situation is chaotic. I can sit there and very calmly remind myself that all of these things are happening around me. They are not happening in me. And I'm able to maintain that clarity of thought and that calmness because I've trained that into me. And the concept of a personal mantra is something you've trained into yourself so you can, in a crude way, go, hey, snap back. As it all unravels, you can pull yourself back to that core. And it doesn't really matter what your mantra is as long as you've trained it into you and it has meaning. And finally, so you've mentioned that, you know, you go to the gym, you've mentioned you've got your personal mantra. Is there anything else that you do for health and wellness that you think would help other doctors in training? Yeah, I get away with my partner. Leah and I will go away for lunch somewhere, not not away for long holidays, but we'll drive away for lunch somewhere and set up in a quiet table in a quiet area and order some food and, you know, maybe a glass of wine and just sit and exist together and it may only be a couple of hours but you can usually find a couple of hours and just exist and just exist as who you are with the people you want to exist with separate from work separate from all the demands and I find that to be so valuable when you don't have a lot of time and you don't have a lot of money as a junior doctor that it's a very soothing way to find yourself again thanks Eric we're here to support you. Visit MDA National's website at mdanational.com.au or call 1-800-011-255 for tailored advice specific to your situation, career stage or policy. The information provided is based on the personal experiences of the doctor speaker and does not constitute medico-legal advice from or by MDA National.